Tonight I want to continue talking about happiness and the practices that we do here that result in happiness. Even after or during or as we cultivate our uh, open-handed generosity and feel and live with the happiness of that connection Tonight I want to continue talking about happiness and the practices that we do here that result in happiness. Even after or during or as we cultivate our Uh, open-handed generosity and feel and live with the happiness of that connection that we cultivate with others through generosity. Living with the connection of inaffection and caring for uh, and having noble Uh, friends, feeling self-confident. There still are times in our life when we're unhappy. And even living a very ethical life where we respect our, the sensitivity of our heart and we, we esteem and value the sensitivity of others' uh, minds, so that our actions in speech does not offend ourselves or others. Even living with that degree of care and consideration without disturbing ours or others' hearts, where we really can live in safety, in, in, without fearing one another, sometimes we can still find that we're unhappy we can discover, we can see that our minds sometimes are out of control, sometimes have a mind of their own, sometimes are obsessed, sometimes are just implacably frustrated. And it takes another practice, it takes another training to discover happiness in the mind. So tonight I want to speak about the happiness of a pure mind. Huang Po was a Chinese Zen master many years ago. And he said, in part, This pure mind, which is, of, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is a jewel beyond price. This pure mind is a jewel beyond price. If we knew that we have such a jewel, wouldn't we be happy? This mind that we are sometimes struggling with, sometimes at ease with, sometimes unconscious of, sometimes even aware of, is the substance of life. It's 
our consciousness, its consciousness, its awareness, it's the knowing of everything that we know through every sense door, including the mind. It's not static. We can see that. We can all verify that the mind is not static. But instead, it is an extremely lively, dynamic continuum. And in itself is very active, but also is the source for our activity of speaking and our activity of acting with our bodies through the intentions that arise in the mind. So we could say that all experience is rooted in the mind and its activities. The Buddha said in the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all conditions. Mind is chief. All conditions are mind-made. If one with an impure mind speaks or acts, then pain or dukkha follows one, just as the wheel (coughs) follows the hoof of the ox that pulls the cart. However, if one with a pure mind speaks or acts, then happiness follows one just as a shadow that never leaves. With this human birth that we've taken, we have the opportunity to discover the nature of our mind, and to change the flow of consciousness, to profoundly alter the stream of consciousness which we are from whatever states of discontentment, frustration, unhappiness, struggle we feel, to a continuum of states of happiness and a sense of freedom. That transformation is a transformation of consciousness. So what is the pure mind? What is a pure mind? That is the basis for wholesome actions, thoughts, speech, behavior. Obviously, it's not some empty-headedness, nor is it spacey nothingness, nor is it inert vacuum, neither is it obliviousness. How could we act from any of those spaces? How could we care for others from such ethereal place? but rather the mind of knowing when pure is calm, collected, clear, extremely lucid, precise knowing. Knowing of any experience, moment after moment, without the hindering or distorting lenses of intervening thoughts, overwhelming emotions. We can see that the pure mind is not some puritanical dogma of uh, uh, restraint. That's not pure mind. Neither is it a morality of prohibition, but rather it's knowing, pure and simple, clear knowing this moment. 
purely, without distortion, clearly. And it doesn't matter what is known. The mind remains pure. It can be pleasant. It can be unpleasant. Even the Buddha, with his purified mind, and others who have purified their minds, feel the unpleasantness of the body. Aches and pains, just like we do. So what is it that prevents us from this clear, lucid knowing? Why is it that we don't, that we didn't write that poem? My pure mind, jewel beyond price? Who could say that? There are obstacles, there are clouds, there are obstructions that hide the purity or the clarity of the mind from us. We've been talking about them for this past week. The distractions of thought, the longing for something in the past, anticipations for something in the future, expectations for achievement, clinging or aversion to something. And these distractions in the mind, these clouds or these obstructions that obscure our knowing really indicate a very static and fixed relationship to the experience. Maybe subtle, maybe gross. But our relationship to experience, conditioned by innumerable past experiences, fixes a sense of I. I want, I don't want. I like, I don't like. I envy, I desire. Maintaining that fixed relationship to stabilize that sense of I is frustratingly impossible. The mind can't sit still long enough to maintain a stable sense of I in a fixed relationship to anything. Just consider your significant other partner now or in the past or whenever. The person that you love the most is also the person this can sometimes provoke the most anger. We can't fix anything. We can't hold anything stable. Our sense of ourself in relation to any other. So this fixedness, this, this, this distraction in the mind, this clinging or this aversion or this confusion, this restlessness, is like a filter on the mind, distorting what we see, covering up, obscuring that pure, uncontaminated knowing. Now each of these obstructions, each of these hindrances, these clouds that come over the mind and cast a spell over us. Each of them arises associated with confusion because we do not see this moment's experience clearly. We, if it's pleasant, we may believe, ah, this pleasant experience is going to satisfy me, is going to make me happy is going to fulfill me, and so we cling. Or an unpleasant experience comes by. We don't see it clearly as unpleasant, and we think, oh, got to get away from this. This is really ugly, painful, 
hurtful. Don't want to have anything to do with it. And our mind is clouded by aversion. Or if a very neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience arises, we may consider it insignificant and just fall asleep. Not even notice it. But in any event, whether it's clinging or aversion or considering it insignificant, we constellate an I, me, mine, relationship to it. And when we constellate an I, a me or mine, then we arouse self-interest, taking care of that I, taking care of me. And we begin to look out for ourselves and let the other beware. Because when clinging and attachment and craving and desire is in the mind, you may have noticed what you are willing to do to satisfy it. Contrary to your own knowledge, contrary to the hearts and peace of mind of others, you may pursue getting and having what you want. We do it here. Or if aversion enters the mind, again, we pursue our own self-interest to get away from that person that's too noisy, that person that doesn't smell right, that person that we don't agree with. Self-interested behavior coming from a place of not really respecting, not really opening to the heart of others. And that disregard for others in pursuit of our own pleasurable interest can never lead to happiness. To clarify, to bring the, the, the nature of the mind, to bring the purity of the mind, the unobscured mind, into focus so that we can see it for ourselves, we need to sharpen our perceptual qualities or attributes of the mind, our perception, our recognition of what's happening, our attention to or our attending to this moment's experience our mindfulness of it. We need to strengthen the cognitive qualities of the mind where we connect with and sustain our attention on the experience so that we can recognize it. Making the mind resolute and decisive in its attention. And we need to balance the affective qualities of the mind the emotional relationship to all experience so that restlessness is brought into balance with tranquility, where clinging is brought into balance by letting go, where aversion is brought into balance with acceptance and patience, tolerance. These first days are the hardest days. Because the obstructions, the hindrances, the the clouds in the mind are thickest. So what is the nature of a pure mind? We may have a sense now of what it isn't. Without the clouds in the mind, without the clouds obscuring, obstructing the mind, the mind is light, luminous, radiant, buoyant, pliable, adaptable, able to clearly know, experience, feel, any and every moment. Balanced.
in time, with practice, we can begin to recognize the moments that are initially brief, but as we continue practice, become increasingly uh, powerful, where we have that quality of mind, where our experience is known moment after moment. Remember, it doesn't have to be pleasant, only clear for the mind to be pure. And so to transform this consciousness, this this dynamic, fluxing consciousness from confusion, cloudiness, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness, to a state of happiness or liberation, the obstructions, the clouds, need to be seen for what they are. Ephemeral transparencies in the mind. And replaced with the wholesome qualities of the mind. Clarity, stillness, equanimity. So tonight I want to mention a couple of the hindrances and and the factors of mind which directly oppose those hindrances. And the first that I talk about is maybe the most familiar, sloth and torpor, which has been spoken about by other teachers here. But sloth and torpor can be of three kinds. There can be genuine tiredness in the first few days of retreat, and the antidote for that is to go take a nap. But by this stage of the retreat, it often happens that we run into a different type of uh, dullness, sleepiness, and that's resistance, or the, uh, the mind that doesn't want to look at difficult experience, whether it's pain in the body or pain in the mind. After a while, the mind just gets tired and says, I'm out of here. No, thank you. And we experience it as sleepiness, dullness. And there's a third type of sleepiness which sometimes we get into, which is really an imbalance in the concentration and energy, where we're just too still in the mind and body, and there's not enough mental energy to balance it. And again, we fall into an over-concentrated state of dullness, sleepiness, sometimes losing consciousness. But in any event, with any of these three dullings of the mind, we just cannot be aware of the experience in the moment. It just obscures our perception, our our sensory perception of what's happening. The body gets fuzzy, sounds grow distant, the breath becomes subtle, and we're asleep. This tinamida, or sloth and torpor, is a paralysis of consciousness where the mind just stagnates, stays still, unbright, unenergized. And it's said that tinamida, or sloth and torpor, smothers all other mental activity. And you may have noticed, with the unclarity or the dullness of sleepiness, how easy it is to forget what we're doing here and think that the most important thing we need to do is take a nap. Or in the sleepiness, dullness of mind, we may forget that others are sensitive here too. And we go wandering through the dining room for our cup of tea like a bull in a china shop. Real easy to forget sensitivity of heart, ours and others, 
when we're dull and sleepy. Many ways of working with dullness, sleepiness, and probably many of them have been mentioned, but just as a reminder. Maybe first and foremost is to just note it, to just recognize dullness and sleepiness when it comes. to investigate the experience of sleepiness. We all know what sleepiness is. It's just before we want to take a nap. But what is it really? Where is it located in the body? What is its quality? Can we get so curious about dullness and sleepiness that our interest banishes it? Sometimes it happens. Just noting dullness and getting curious to discover its true experience puts it away. But if our noting is not energetic enough, then we may just have to sit up straight. And often correcting our posture so that we're sitting straighter can bring energy to the mind and the body. And I remember many months in Burma dealing with sleepiness of one sort or another and finally arriving at a a posture where I would sit on my feet because it was just painful enough to keep me awake. Because, you know, after a while, we get pretty comfortable with our, you know, our sitting posture, and we can just kind of cruise on automatic pilot. Sometimes we need a a stronger object to help us stay awake. It's helpful also to to, uh, sit in a well-lit room or sit with your eyes open. So if at night you're sleepy, early morning you're sleepy, turn on the lights. The Buddha gave all sorts of advice for those who are sleepy, including pulling on your earlobes very vigorously, taking cold showers or baths, rubbing limbs vigorously. One yogi came the other day and said that due to some condition, I don't remember if it was sleepiness, but she wandered off into one of the fields around here and began singing. And she was singing songs that were very inspiring, spiritual songs of some sort. They were very inspiring and really brought a lot of energy to her. And I know for myself, when I come and chant in the evening, chanting for 15 minutes stirs up so much energy that I often have difficulty getting back to sleep or getting to sleep. (laughs) So I won't be chanting anymore in the evening. (laughs) But sometimes you can remember that, that even silently reciting the chant in your mind can raise the energy to get you through a particularly dull sitting. Of course, if you're still overeating, your wisdom factor may be a little low, but that's also also often a cause of sleepiness, as well as napping being a cause of sleepiness. But maybe most important is to really develop an attitude or a determination of mind, a curiosity in the mind, a a quality of investigation that wants to know clearly, decisively, what this experience of sleepiness is. So that we investigate carefully, precisely, energetically, as soon as dullness or sleepiness begins to Uh, obscure our mind. In these first days of, of practice, I think we've all seen how necessary it is to 
really bring uh, a pretty firm determination and a pretty potent intention to practice. Without it, we just drift. If we don't really remind ourselves in a determined way what I'm doing here, why I'm here, and and to reflect briefly on what brought us here, then it's real easy to take the whole thing for granted and miss the value of this retreat. And it happens. Where we just fall into a routine after a week or ten days, and we coast to Thanksgiving. And then we say, whoa, it's almost over. I better get on with it. Don't wait till Thanksgiving. Remind yourself daily, or before each sitting, really bring some uh, determined motivation, intention to mind, frequently. It really helps to set the mind on a course of wakefulness. And when doubts or concerns or questions arise, to not be swamped, to really briefly reflect on what we know from our own reading or experience or teachers that can give us that boost of confidence to continue in that moment for that sitting, for that walking, for that next period of time. But maybe more than any of these, the factor of mind which most directly opposes sleepiness is the ability to apply our mind precisely so that we connect our attention to the chosen object, to the chosen experience. And this connecting of the mind doesn't happen if we're not careful if we're not consciously directing our mind to attend to either the primary object or the most predominant experience, then we won't. We'll drift. We'll float along the top in a kind of a global general awareness, not really connecting to anything. And dullness sets in. I'm sure you've had the experiences. I just want to point to it so that, to remind you that what's going on there when there's a nice, comfortable sitting of skimming along the top descends into sleepiness is look to see. Are you really connecting with your experience? Have you really attended to each moment? Can you distinguish this moment from the next? Or is it just an homogenous buzz throughout the whole sitting? This connecting or this application of the mind is like it's the initial touching of the mind on our experience. Whether it's physical body experience, whether it's the mind, whether it's a mental state, an intention, whatever it is, attending to it as it appears. When we continuously arouse this factor of mind, moment after moment, it brings lightness, buoyancy, pliability to the mind. Because in each moment there is a new experience to be known, to be seen, to be felt. And it requires that we connect with it to know it. And so that connecting, that that 
repeated connecting with momentary experience puts away sleepiness, dullness. And when we arouse this quality of mind, when we arouse this function of the mind to connect with experience, it really increases our sensory perception. And we experience it as increasing intensity of everything. Little aches and pains become intense aches and pains. Little experience of joy and contentment becomes big experience, joy, contentment, maybe. Little memory that used to be insignificant before we got here becomes all-consuming remembrance. Little plan that was just floating in the background, once our ability to connect with it gets heightened, becomes plan for the rest of my life. Everything becomes more intense when we start paying attention to it because we're connecting with it more solidly, because we're actually touching that experience with the mind, actually feeling its texture. So sleepiness or sloth and torpor, dullness of mind, directly opposed by the ability of the mind to connect with experience. The second obstruction, the second cloud in the mind, which prevents us from clearly knowing experience is doubt. Again, there's a couple of kinds of doubt. There is the doubt that is very speculative, which is based on thought. The doubt of Should I be practicing insight? Should I be practicing Sufi dancing? Should I be, you know, sitting with Joseph for three months? Or should I be doing a weekend with Stephen Levine? You know, there's that type of doubt that goes on in the mind. And somehow we've gotten through enough of that to get here. But it can come up again. You may have noticed. Has anybody questioned why they're here, whether this is really what you want to be doing in the next three months. Yeah, of course, these doubts come, really agitates the mind. It's a large part of our confidence in the practice, in meditation or Buddhism or understanding For us in the West, a large part of it comes from reading or from hearing teachers or skillful speakers talk about the mind, the path of practice, and the nature of liberation. And so we get these ideas in our head about what it is. And then we come here and we practice. And the first thing we do is start noting thoughts, not paying attention to them. And so all that confidence that was built up on and based on thought and logic and rationality gets undermined because we're not noting. We're not believing that anymore. We're just noting thoughts. And often we can find ourselves in a terrible uh, spiral of doubt. Is this the right practice? And where is it going? That type of doubt uh, those type of questions need to be answered by your teacher, your, your up here, or, or reading a book or something. Not reading here, but you know, when it comes up here, to ask the questions that can uh, remind you of what you know or where your confidence is. But that confidence is only a temporary infusion of someone else's confidence in understanding. It's because we don't have for ourselves the understanding to support an unshakable confidence. And so we're going to deal with doubt. 
it is inevitable that doubt is going to come into our minds in this practice. It can be partially and temporarily confronted by equanimity. Just arousing equanimity in our mind where the agitation and the restlessness of doubt is balanced by conscious self-soothing where we just give ourselves the benefit of doubt and recognize the reactivity in the mind and put it aside. can also be confronted initially by some tranquility, just tranquilizing ourselves, putting ourselves in a more comfortable place so that we're not so confronted by that doubt. can also be temporarily uh, confronted by determined resoluteness or determined resolution in the mind where we fix our mind on a course of behavior in a very determined way so that the doubts don't have the opportunity to knock us off balance. These can work temporarily get through a particular crisis. But inevitably it comes to the type of doubt of not knowing what is actually going on. And sometimes you'll find yourself sitting, making every effort that you know of, using the techniques you know, to be present, to be mindful, and not understanding what's going on. Not clearly knowing this moment's experience, whether it's physical or mental. And what's needed then is the power of the mind to stay with what it connects to. So after attending to the arising experience. We need to understand and develop the ability to stay with that experience to see what happens to it. And you may be asked, as some of you are who report to me, when you describe your experiences in practice, I often will stop you in the midst of your description and say, What happened to that pain as you noted it? What happened to that mental state as you noted it? What happened to that fantasy, that thought, as you noted it? Because it takes another development of the mind to know what happens to experience after it arises. It can arise, we can connect with it, we can know it. But if we don't sustain our attention on it, we're not going to know what happens to it. And it's at that moment that we lose continuity. We see it briefly. It lasts for two seconds. We saw it for a tenth of a second. We're lost for most of the time. And you might notice that when we're not really diligent, we easily slip off the object. Maybe watching one breath, the beginning of one breath, not even noticing the end of it. Beginning to notice a a pain or a flicker or a tightness or a numbness in the leg and having no idea what happened to it as we observed it. Just know it was there somewhere in the sitting. It's because of an inability to sustain or an unknowing of the necessity of sustaining our attention on the experience. And a good way to understand how connecting and or applying our mind and sustaining our mind works is it's like 
um, if we were holding something in our hand, a, a, bra- a cup, and we wanted to polish it, the mere touching of that cup is felt and known, but doesn't get much polishing done. It's the rubbing of the cloth or whatever on that cup that's going to polish it, that is going to bring out the distinctive nature, the characteristics, and reveal what that cup is. So too with the mind. Merely touching our experience with the mind doesn't reveal very much. But by rubbing the mind, by sustaining the mind on the experience, we come to know it very well. And the same with the ringing of this, this gong here. The contact of the mallet with the gong is only momentary. The result lasts for several seconds. And if we don't sustain our attention on it, we'll never know what happens to that sound. We'll be on to some thought. We'll be off in some fantasy before the ringing has stopped. So I'm going to ring this gong. And notice the different functions of mind connecting with the sound and then the sustaining of the sound. And notice that they're different. It requires different ability in the mind to hear than to know what happens to it. But there's really nothing for us to do. Merely to notice the connecting with the sound and the sustaining of the attention on it. You notice how easy it is to hear the gong and how difficult it is to stay with it. Same in meditation. Same with the breath. With changing objects in the mind-body continuum. Very easy to know a brief momentary something. Very difficult to stay with it to know what happens to it. The mind wants to leave and go and explore and think and plan and and do all sorts of things except stay with that sound. And we notice all that. And sometimes we actually stay with the sound. These two factors, or when we are able to connect with and sustain our attention, then the nature of the experience is known, without a doubt. We know whether it's a thought or a pain. And sometimes it's very difficult to know if we don't sustain our attention. We won't know where in the body phenomena arises, and we won't know the nature of our mental phenomena. And so you can begin to work with attending to the connection and the sustaining of your attention on your experience. These two factors of mind, this connection and sustaining, most important work of meditation. Everything else comes from connecting and sustaining. Without connecting and sustaining, nothing results but speculation, (coughs) thoughts. They work together, hard to sustain our attention if we don't connect it. And it's the clarity with which we notice our experience reveals the true nature of the pure mind. 
the luminosity, the clarity, the, the lightness, the pliability, flexibility, the ability of the mind to know a great variety of things, very gross physical, mental phenomena, very subtle physical, mental phenomena, so subtle uh, intentions. How subtle can they be? And yet the mind, in its purity, can reveal them. When we are able to, or attending to, our connecting and sustaining factors and faculties in the mind, our knowing becomes very lucid, very luminous, very clear. And we experience it as intense. The happiness that we get from that is the freedom from the torments of doubt, sleepiness, attachment, aversion. And those factors, when present in the mind, do not conduce to happiness, as you've noticed. And so when we can attend to and be with our experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we are free from those unhappy-making factors of mind. And we really feel and experience the energy, the confidence, the tranquility, the clarity, the equanimity, the decisiveness of the mind. These are all factors of mind present in happiness. Later, I'll speak about the other three primary hindrances or obstructions to the clear, pure mind and the factors of mind which oppose them. Maybe we should sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.